Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Helena uh, Norberg-Hodges, an author, filmmaker, environmentalist and activist, and a pioneer of the new economy and localisation movements. Her documentary, The Economics of Happiness, there's those words again, economics and happiness. That documentary reveals how globalisation is accelerating climate change, adding to the stress of modern life and destroying local community. Thankfully, it doesn't leave us there. It also suggests how these trends can be reversed, how turning to localisation will encourage people to reconnect with their local communities, preserve their culture and traditions, and ultimately create a happier and a healthier world. How do we do that in our own communities? Let's find out. Please join me now in welcoming Helena. Thank you very much. Very, very happy to be here and so happy to see that there are so many women in the audience. I'm uh, so keen that more women start looking at the economy. So I hope you won't glaze over and say, no, no, that's not for me. <clears throat> I think that the title, Communities in Control, is what my work has been about forever, for 40 years now. But I think in order to actually bring back control to communities, we've got to look at the economy, unfortunately. Uh, it can sound a bit dry, it can sound a bit far removed, but today it's become a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity to reverse the social and environmental crises that are facing every society on the planet today. And localization, as an economic trajectory is simply a remarkable win-win-win strategy. Localization is not just um, going to reduce and in many cases solve our social and ecological problems. It helps restore democracy and maybe most importantly, it's the economics of happiness. And it's precisely for the reasons that Hugh so beautifully articulated earlier. We need to see one another in the eyes. We need that connection. That's how we evolved. We evolved in groups, in human scale groups. How can we rebuild that again? Not just as something that we choose to do within structures that are actually pulling us apart. But how can we actually rebuild the structures that rebuild the interdependence that was the fabric of community from the beginning of time? So rebuilding those structures, that's the key element of, of what I think we need to do. But in order to look at this, we have to see that so much of the discussion about taking control back and rebuilding community, even bringing power, structural power back to the community, so much of it has been a focus on the political power. And so for instance, right now in Scotland, people want to have more control over their lives and they're looking at a political decentralization. And again and again and again, 
as people think about bringing power back, they tend to look at the political power. But the problem is that we have not been looking at the real political power that is shaping our lives. The actual political power today is in the hands of interlinked global structures, banks and corporations that have come to dominate democracy, that have come to dominate our lives in such a way that many of you are old enough to remember that even 20 years ago, the first item on the news was not how the stock market was doing. It was not constantly about this unstable economic system on which we're now so dependent. Bringing this up and talking about how the real government has become this centralized, interlinked, mad structure between giant mega corporations and banks can often lead to a feeling among people that there's no point talking about it because we can't change it. It can be seen as unrealistic. But I hope that I can convince you that when you combine it with studying more carefully, not just that mega structure at the top, but when you start studying what is actually happening in the name of localization, well, I shouldn't say in the name of localization. I would say structurally it's about localization. So if you start studying what is happening around the world that is really inspiring, really positive, and that so clearly restores both human and ecological well-being, you'll be very, very vitalized and encouraged. I, I really think you will. I'm amazed at the number of new projects that fall under that um, umbrella of localization. Once you look at the structural significance of localization, having been a proponent of it, I think probably I coined the term localization um, and decentralization already 30, 40 years ago. And we, in my organization, we're called Local Futures, and we, you know, we're really studying this, and we are amazed almost every day to learn about new initiatives that we didn't know about. And the reason we don't know about them is partly that they're not getting coverage in the media, but also because by their nature, they tend to be a multitude of smaller things. And for that reason, sometimes people overlook their significance, forgetting that many small can be more powerful than one big. Before I go on to talk more about localization, I do want to talk about the, the opposite direction, which is really what economic globalization is about. Maybe the best term to uh, keep in mind is that it's a process of international trade and finance treaties. These international treaties, which were more formally um, shaped to, to really shape the economic activity around the world after the Depression, after the Great Depression, came in at the same time as the World Bank, the IMF, and something called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. For very good reasons, many people who were even back then concerned about the power of multinational corporations they didn't really pay attention to this process of trade treaties 
because a general agreement on tariffs and trade sounds rather nice. And so when we would hear in the media, oh, countries are meeting to negotiate a new trade treaty, we would think, well, we really do want them to agree. So we would be disappointed if it turned out, oh, they couldn't come to an agreement. Now that is beginning to change, thank goodness. Right now we have an opportunity, we have an invitation as never before to systemically shed light on the central trajectory that has taken the world in the direction of mass consumerism, mass commercialization, massive increases in energy, plastics, toxins, and a massive threat to democracy. Just as importantly, it's been a massive threat to social and community cohesion and stability worldwide. This opportunity is to raise awareness about the TPP for Australia, but also the TTIP, which is the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership between the US and Europe, because that treaty will also affect life here in Australia, but also because we are people who are viewing these things from an empathetic, holistic, and global concern. We are people who don't want to close down into some narrow localism without concern for other people. So it's very, very important that we try to understand this process from a more global perspective, that we see how it's affecting people in China, in, in the United States, as well as here in Australia. And when we see that more global picture, it becomes so clear that taking this next giant step towards these new treaties is pure madness. Can I ask how many of you are familiar with the negative side of the TPP, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Yeah, so, so, you know, there are very few of you, and those who are not familiar, in no way should you feel um, ignorant or stupid because the majority of people have not heard about this. Why haven't they heard about it? I, I still find it sometimes hard to understand, but I think mainly we haven't heard about it because it's assumed that it's too dry, it's too complicated, for ordinary citizens to, to pay attention or to be informed. Certainly this is what we've been told year after year by journalists who don't cover uh, these issues when we raise them. Um, I was asked to do an interview for a very big paper in Italy about half a year ago, and it was in Florence, and they wanted me to talk about the fate of Florence and all the tourists pouring in the pressure of immigration, and generally how I felt about what was happening in Florence. And when I talked about how people felt, you know, that their whole society was disintegrating, how you walk down the streets of Florence and you barely see an Italian among those. You'll find people from virtually everywhere else in the world, but not Italy. And in most of the shops and the restaurants and the businesses, you have Eastern Europeans who are able to work for a lower salary. And anyway, when I 
talks about all of that, they were perfectly happy to print that, but not when I mentioned that we should all take this incredible opportunity and say a no to these latest trade treaties. Then suddenly, you know, they left that out. And when I asked the journalist, why did you leave that out about the TTIP? He said, well, I didn't want to get too technical. So this is what I think, you know, I really don't think that this is a dark conspiracy with a few Rockefellers and Rothschilds sitting in the dark room smoking their cigars and trying to destroy the world in order to make uh, billions of dollars. What I think we're up against is this blindness of very specialized thinking, whether you're a social worker or an activist, whether you're an economist, whether you're an environmentalist, we've been encouraged to specialize, and we haven't been paying attention to this bigger picture whereby the economy as a system has subsidized and aided and abetted those industries that use the most fossil fuels, um, those industries that are forced to chase across the world and look for the cheapest labor. They have to, by their very nature, to be competitive in the global economy. They've got to go search, searching the cheapest labor. And of course, what's happening is you end up with a sort of rape and run economy where big industry comes in, big sweat factories, and then out again to go to another place where labor is cheaper. It is not benefiting the majority of people. The pressures of that global economy on the so-called third world is also the main reason why within the industrialized countries there is such a flood of pressure um, of immigration as their livelihoods and their cultures and societies are being destroyed. So this is an incredible opportunity because in these latest treaties, they are spelling out, and it's, it's public knowledge. This is not happening in a dark room with a few men. It's a systemic escalation, and not enough people are paying attention. But if you, you can read about it, which I hope you will, in these treaties they have clauses called ISDS, which stands for Investor State Dispute Settlements. Investor state dispute settlements. What they mean is that countries are signing on, saying, yes, yes, we will let foreign corporations and banks sue us if we do anything to impede their profit making potential. So, already now, a Swedish corporation, I'm originally from Sweden, and I can tell you, actually, the majority of Swedes were against nuclear power. But in this way in which global corporations have so much influence, the government has gone in that direction. So we, we do have it. And it's a Swedish nuclear power company called Waterfall is now suing Germany for 3.7 billion euros. Why? Because they decided to phase out nuclear power after Fukushima. So. Uh, as you probably know, Australia is being sued by Philip Morris for the cigarette packet, packaging. But also, please look on YouTube. You will see quite a funny comedian named John Oliver looking at how these cigarette companies have been suing small countries like Togo, basically saying, you let us market cigarettes to your 10-year-olds with very attractive advertising, or you're going to get sued 
for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So these treaties that our governments are pushing, the heads of our governments are pushing, and virtually everywhere, it's not left or right. Clinton and Obama are pushing them every bit as hard as Bush did, just like Gillard pushed as hard as Abbott is pushing. So we really have to see this um, economic picture goes beyond left and right, which is a wonderful thing because we have this potential to create coalitions like we've never had before. And on the one side of those coalitions um, is a resistance to further trade treaties. This open door inviting us to say, no, no, that's just going too far. And once we are able to halt this acceleration, the whole world will be able to breathe a sigh of relief because the pressures of more debt, more growth, and we can't afford to look after people, but we've got to service this economy. We've got to have more debt. You've got to have more debt. Joe Hockey on Q&A yesterday encouraging us all to go into more debt. This is how it works. We've got to do this. And we are not looking at why. We're not looking at where that pressure comes from, and we're not looking at the real government. So I just want to say also with that that so many people have lost faith in doing anything in terms of changing policy, in terms of changing government. Because around the world, even in our tiny country of Sweden, where we used to feel that we had some kind of voice as voters and we had a bit of a dialogue with government, people are giving up and feeling you know, when they're trying to get elected, they talk to us about jobs, about the environment, about issues we care about. And then suddenly when they're in power, they're singing to a different uh, choir. And it's a sort of karaoke <laughs> from global capital is what it is. And what we have to keep in mind now is, well, maybe the problem with politics and the reason we didn't make so much, uh, didn't have so much of an impact was that we weren't looking at the real government. We weren't actually looking at what was governing us because it was in this global arena, very mobile and very hard to see, especially because the media didn't cover it. Academia hasn't really covered it either. It's almost as though in postmodern academia, I often say, what gets deconstructed is everything under the sun, but not the global economy. And that's what we now need to deconstruct, both intellectually and in terms of resistance. On, on the other side, we have just as big an opportunity, and that is to strengthen the opposite, which is communities, really strengthen the community fabric by supporting the local economy movement. The local economy movement is what's beginning to rebuild the interdependence between people that means that having that human connection and looking each other in the eye, being feeling really a sense of belonging becomes part of a structural way that means it's part of our daily lives. It's not then, you know, sitting on a computer and being an appendage to a business that's working all over the world where I argue that our, hand, our arms have grown so long we can't see what our hands are doing. Within those long-distance relationships, 
that are also very, very mobile, it's almost impossible to act ethically. As a consumer, as a corporate CEO, I had the opportunity once as a member of this forum on globalization, I helped to start an international forum studying the impact of trade treaties around the world. And we had some uh, very big players, actually at that time one of the richest men in the world who was a right-wing tycoon, Sir James Goldsmith, and on the left someone named Doug Tompkins who started the Esprit com uh, Company. And they became convinced that these trade treaties really were serious and put funding into trying to raise awareness. We also tried to reach other multimillionaires. So we had a meeting where Richard Branson came and the head of the Gap Corporation. We weren't able to convince them, by the way. But the, the head of the Gap, he was basically a good man. And he was so angry at these activists who were going out to Vietnam, and I think it was mainly Vietnam at that time, and claiming that Gap was using sweat labor and abusing their labor. What we found out over the years is that actually when they sent out, because he was saying we're sending out people regularly, we are not abusing labor. And of course, what we found out over the years was, as probably you know too, even here within Australia, the central government is often not really in touch with what's happening on the ground. Well, when you're a Gap CEO sitting in San Francisco and you send someone over to Vietnam once a month or something, what happens is the laborers are told, you be quiet or you are out, or sometimes even you are dead if you open your mouth. So we're dealing with a system where the long distances make it almost impossible to be ethical. We're dealing with a system where the market is so rigged in the favor of the big and global, and it's rigged through, it's rigged in such a way that it's almost impossible to have really ethical market solutions. Which is why we also have to be wary of pure economic instruments in isolation like carbon trading, even like divestment. Divestment could be good, even, I don't know about carbon trading. Divestment could be a good thing within a campaign that highlights that these trade treaties have to be reversed. But without doing that, we are talking about putting a, a, a market solution into a system where the big simply pay the fines and the small are going under in larger and larger numbers. We're talking about a system where we don't even see it, but while our governments are deregulating global banks and corporations, local and national businesses are overregulated. So while you might you know, want to build a, a staircase in your house and you want it to be one inch higher each step than the local council says, your taxes will pay for that policing to prevent you know, something being built inside your house. At the same time, your taxes are subsidizing the McDonald's superhighway and the exit for the McDonald's. And you know, even the, the straight highways are for the super large lorries that are literally carrying things back and forth, back and forth, the same products. We are 
signing on to trade treaties which encourage us to grow our economy through more trade, but actually the trade is a swapping, in many cases, of identical products. And I'm talking about, you know, the U.S. exporting 900,000 tons of beef while turning around and importing about 900,000 tons of beef. The U.K. exporting as much milk and butter as it imports. Australia exporting wheat to Europe, importing wheat from Europe. Australia importing oranges from California, and they'll sell in the supermarket for half the price of Australian oranges, even as the Australian ones are available. We, we have far, far more of this than you than you realize, because we don't hear about it. It's the main cause of global warming. We don't hear about it, the global food economy. Uh, from England, they fly apples to South Africa to be washed and waxed and fly them back again. They fly shrimp to Thailand to be peeled and flown back again. They fly fish from Norway to China to be deboned, fly them back again. This is something that we need to raise awareness about, because stopping that redundant trade would be a giant step towards both economic and environmental health. The biggest step we could take to reduce global warming in one fell swoop. And it, you know, because you, when you're talking about swapping identical products or flying things off to be peeled and deboned and so on, you really, you are talking about the most incredible waste of energy. I must get on now to tell you more about localization and why the antidote to all of this is to strengthen local economies. But I just do want to stress that combining that building of local economies with an awareness-raising component of the need to resist the TPP, please just send out emails. When people ask what you can do, awareness-raising is one of the most important activisms in a climate where the media is simply not doing its job. And it's partly because the media is one of those giant corporations, as we know. It's linked into those conglomerates. Now, to come back to localization, the central area to focus on to really see clearly why it is such a win-win strategy is food. And I want to make a plea for all of us keeping in mind and I'm so glad so many of you are women, that there is nothing else in the world that human beings produce that every single human being needs every day of their life. Nothing else. There's nothing else that compares in importance. And one way also to think about it is if we do have upheavals in climate or possibly political upheavals or energy crises, most supermarket shelves will be empty in three days. Now, also keep in mind that if that happens to your community, that the supermarket shelves are empty in three days, you could manage with the clothes you have. You could manage with the buildings you have, even if you all had to move into a, a, a schoolhouse or something. But food would become the issue in a very, very short time. So let's not allow our politicians, who are meant to be our representatives, to treat agriculture as just another industry. Now, first of all, it should not be treated as an industry, because it turns out that the truth is that the industrial production of food, which we have been led to believe, actually increased productivity. 
doesn't increase productivity. The reason why we believe that was because back when industrial agriculture and the Green Revolution was being pushed, we all went along with the idea that if food production without people, with fewer jobs, produces food, well then that's efficient. So we were sold on the idea of industrial, large-scale monocultures and machines being efficient, and that this was efficiencies of scale. Long, long time ago, we should have re-examined what's efficient. It is not efficient to replace jobs with energy-guzzling machinery, with toxic chemicals, when one of our biggest problems is pollution, both, you know, climate change, but also toxic pollution and unemployment. That is not efficient, especially when study after study, particularly now for the last, well, since about 2000, there are huge studies that the whole world should have known about if we didn't have a corporate media. YASTAD, well, YASTAD stands for the International Assessment of Agricultural Science and Technology for Development. It was a, I think it was a five-year study involving about 400 scientists and farmers in 63 countries. It was actually commissioned by the World Bank and the UN, but when the results came out, it was buried because the results said industrial green revolution agriculture is a disaster. The head of the study said, if we continue in this direction, we'll be living on a planet no one wants to inhabit. And they pointed very clearly towards more diversified, smaller-scale agriculture. A more recent study from UNCTAD, the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development, said the same thing, but even more strongly. And that study actually warned against the trade treaties and recommended more localized food production for local needs. One of the biggest social movements in the world you won't have heard of, partly for the same reasons that this, those who critique the trade treaties just don't get into the media. So the biggest social movement in the world is Via Campesina, which means in Spanish the way of the farmer. So it started originally in South America, but it has in, in its members over 200 million members, including small farmers associations from Norway and Japan, from all over the world, also from Australia, there are members. And Via Campesina has been for, for uh, now more than, it's probably about 25, maybe 30 years, lobbying for what they call food sovereignty, that farmers should be allowed to prioritize feeding their own regions and their own countries first. So it's, it's a very big discussion, and I know for Australia it can sound unrealistic to think that with such big farms and they're so far removed from the city, how are we going to localize? You know, we can't do it. But keep in mind that localizing is simply a process, as we're defining it, a process of shortening distances. So it would be better to be looking at how can the farms of Australia, first of all, feed Australia, and really crucial is we need policies that help farmers diversify. Even if it's just shifting to some trees as well as grain, some vegetables as well as animals, 
what you do immediately when you help to diversify is to create conditions that are inherently more ecological, but also more productive. You can get much more out of any given plot of land, whether it's one acre or a thousand acres or 10,000 acres. If you have diversified production, you'll be able to get more out of a given piece of land. Highly diversified small family farms in the so-called third world sometimes produce 10 times as much food per unit of land as large monocultures. And we really need to support you know, getting this message out and support that food production in the so-called third world really high priority. The, the, and it means reversing some of these ideas about um, efficiency, productivity, and scale. Very, very exciting is that when people start seeing this bigger picture of the big co economy being a problem for jobs, for financial security, you know, 2008, we're now hearing there's another 2008 coming this way. Many, many economists are aware of it. Um, that instability, that fear, is being accelerated and structurally encouraged through these trade treaties. So please raise awareness about that. In the meanwhile, from the bottom up, not only do we have numerous projects where local food is the the centerpiece. I, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the curve of growth in these local food initiatives is like this. There's still not enough to turn everything around. But in America, they are growing so rapidly. And what's happening is that as consumers and farmers reconnect, very often it starts from big cities where consumers realize that the global food economy is a threat both to the environment, all those reasons I told you, to the welfare of the people who are exporting, who are not getting to eat their own food, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very often urban consumers that take the initiative and link up with farmers, start farmers markets, start food co-ops, producer-consumer co-ops. One of the biggest um, is in Japan, and we have to be a bit careful. It doesn't get too big because then it often can't help and support a multitude of small farms. So it's better to have several initiatives rather than one giant structure. But they are popping up everywhere. I had the pleasure of meeting you know, one of the first initiators in Beijing you know, who started a community-supported agriculture scheme. And what is so wonderful is that there are a lot of young people who, as part of this smaller scale, human scale, more direct relationships with their consumers love farming. This is not about standing in some giant field like a machine, you know, like migrant labor. This is actually about being far more in control of your life. The work every day is different, and there's a real wave. It's a small one. It's not in the media, but there is a real wave of a new farmer's movement. And it's particularly in the industrialized countries, but not only. In India, we're connected with many of these groups. And it, it's a real pattern often of young people who feel, well, partly they find, as Hugh was saying, the work in front of the computer very energy draining. And when they go out and work on a farm, 
they find it energy enhancing. It's good for their health, it's good for their bodies, they're moving, they're working with people, they're working with plants and animals. So edible schoolyards is another element of all of this. Alice Waters, I hope, have you heard of Alice Waters? She's a friend of mine who has been promoting edible schoolyards in the U.S. now really starting 40 years ago. She's the one who got Michelle Obama to plant a garden at the White House. And it's, you know, it's something that is, yeah, it's so affirming, it is so strengthening, and it builds not just community between people, but between people and nature. What we have found by looking at the world through these lenses is that almost every therapy that deals with some of the most frightening and, and difficult addictions that are particularly prevalent in the modern world, uh, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, um, eating disorders, the most successful therapies involve community. And the ones that are even more successful combine it with reconnecting to the non-human world, to animals, to plants. So it's a communion with life, with the realities of life. And it really is rebuilding a, a pattern and a way of being, an interdependence, which is how we evolved for millennia. This blip of being in the high-rise building, far removed from nature and from our neighbors, is very unnatural. Um, and statistics again and again show how that high-rise isolation is bad for us, for our health, for our spirits, for our well-being. In Sweden, I, I came back to Sweden having lived for long periods in a place called Ladakh, which is West Tibet, and also in Bhutan, which many of you will have heard of. And I spoke the language fluently there just as that area was opened up to the modern economy. So I witnessed these changes. This, what happened when people were crowded together suddenly, and no, no social fabric, no interdependence, so there's suddenly on top of each other, but not knowing each other, and no structural interdependence. I also saw that the reason why people were all crowding together in major capital cities was because that's where the economy centralized the jobs. So again, without looking at how the econ economic trajectory is pushing this mass urbanization, we won't really be able to solve the problem. But if we look at the localization movement, which is bringing jobs to smaller towns and decentralizing and localizing economic activity, we start seeing how we can, in a very practical, very pragmatic, very realistic way, reverse so many of the problems we have. Because that alienation and that separation, which happens when we are unnaturally crowded on top of each other, suddenly, even within the city, when you create the structures of interdependence, you start knowing each other and you start forming co community groups, essentially. However, we need to be avoiding further mega-urbanization 
even though we can solve it socially by rebuilding the community fabric within cities, environmentally it's very difficult to create healthy cities if we keep expanding the spread of the urban um, mega cities. Um, so we need to be supporting the revitalization of economic activity in smaller cities and smaller communities. And if we do that, we'll actually see people wanting to move to the smaller town where there are also jobs available. So this in, this in turn is also linked to a change in education. And there again, there are these wonderful initiatives where at schools, not only are they bringing in the edible schoolyard, they have, well, one good example is in Seoul, Korea. Seoul, Korea is one of the most soulless cities in the world. I don't know how many of you have been there, but it is high-rise city. It's like the high-rise capital of the world. But there's a huge longing among the South Koreans for connection to nature, connection to community. And I wrote a book called Ancient Futures, which has been a bestseller there. So I have been there many, many times. And, and I've seen and helped a localization movement start there. You know, how much of it has to do with us, not always clear, but, but we have helped to spark a lot of initiatives. One of them, which I don't think we had anything to do with, is something called Sangmisan Village, which is in Seoul. But it started with families who wanted a different school and who came together to build a different school that was more ecological, that was more community-based, and that was linked to skills that could lead to more meaningful jobs in a more sustainable economy. And Sangmisan started with the school and then grew, and now it's a, a neighborhood where people are interlinked and they have something like Oh, I can't remember now, but I think about a hundred different businesses, small businesses, and there's a dentist there who I also went to. But the whole identity of that place is in having created their interlinked structures, and there are 20,000 of them. So there are 20,000 people in some way connected to this community initiative in, in Korea. Very importantly, as part of their school, they have a connection to a farm uh, some distance from Seoul. So part of the schooling is that children also spend time on the farm. And you just see people thriving from having more abilities to not only use their bodies from here upwards, but also their hands to develop skills and to work together. Uh, so. If you actually are able to study the localization movement, and please do go to our website if you can. It's Local Futures, and we have lots of links to other initiatives. We have a series we call Planet Local, where we bring in examples of some of these initiatives around the world. But as I say, even we are just not able to stay on top of all the things that are happening. And the things that are happening that start with food tend to be the strongest and have grown most effectively around the world. But we also have things like local business alliances. How many of you have heard of ballet, B-A-L-L-E, ballet? No, I'm really glad to be able to introduce you to that. It stands for the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. 
It started by a woman, a friend of mine named Judy Wicks, and she started with her restaurant and realized that she didn't want to be part of this wasteful global economy. She connected to local farmers and so on. But then she realized the benefit of connecting with other local smaller businesses to create networks to support each other and to educate consumers. So now there's a whole fabric of these business alliances, especially in the United States, but there are also initiatives here. And in fact, in October, we're helping, we're holding a conference in Castle, Maine, so there should be papers on your table about that, uh, where we'll be going into much more of this. I hope some of you will come or let people know about it, uh, because we have people from other si the other side of the world also coming to show how in India, how in Brazil, how in France, these things are happening and how beneficial they are. They will also, as I have done, you know, talk a fair amount about the other side of it, the trade treaty side, but it's so important that we don't just say no, we don't just resist, but we renew, resistance and renewal. And when we can present a picture that shows that there is another way and that we mustn't fall into the trap of believing that, well, communism didn't work, so this corporate capitalism that just grows and grows is just the, it's the only alternative. No. There is another way, and the beauty of the other way is that it's not one other way. It's a systemic shift that respects diversity. Localization allows us to adapt economic activity and culture to diverse climates, diverse ecosystems. It's how cultural diversity arose in the first place. And remember again, we're not talking about some kind of isolationism and a lack of concern for others. We're talking about this as a globally interlinked movement which will only ever really be able to be successful with a bigger understanding, a better understanding of the global system and through international collaboration, information exchange, and support. So we need that at the community level and we need to insist that that's what happens at the national level. Because of course, for our global problems, like global warming, we need global collaboration. But that's actually the antithesis of treaties where now governments are collaborating with corporations to say that profit is the most important thing. Profit über alles, and it's profit for a few at the expense of the 99%. The new collaboration says, we know that the real economy is the soil and the water and the people. That's the real economy. We want global collaboration to protect the environment and, and human rights and then under an umbrella of protection, we want to allow for a range of diverse applications. We want to see different languages and different cultures flourish. We want to see a respect for diversity in its fullest form. The amazing thing is, if you really study this from the bottom up, 
is that it is only through diversified production and not only maintaining but renewing the diversity of bio biology, biological diversity, that we're going to be able to survive. We are, this other path is taking us towards an extinction of species. As we speak right now, we're extinguishing species and we're extinguishing languages and they go with that diversity of plants. There is a model forward where we could be vitally and healthily diverse and not just accepting difference, but nourishing and nurturing difference. When people are secure, that's when they are strong enough to welcome diversity. I've seen this, uh, the opposite, you know, the very graphic example in Ladakh and Bhutan. I saw people who had lived side by side for generations. In Ladakh, it was Buddhists and Muslims for 500 years, side by side. There had never been group conflict between those local communities. They were interdependent. And yet they were different. It was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen. And I, I write about it in my book. And, and then over a decade, I saw what happened when the global co economy came in with subsidized food on subsidized roads, bringing in butter from the other side of the Himalaya, selling for half the price of local butter, just one of the many things that sold for less than the local, and destroy the local economy, local jobs, Within a decade, people are suddenly fighting each other over the scarcity of jobs in the city. For 500 years, there had never been a scarcity of jobs. There had never been unemployment. So the structural benefits of building economies that nourish diversity, both cultural and, and uh, biological, offers such potential that we, we, we have not even begun to comprehend it. The grassroots movement from Australia that is one of the leaders in this is permaculture. Now, is there anyone who hasn't heard of permaculture? Nobody. Well, well perma you haven't heard of permaculture. No, but you're, you're not from Australia. Where are you? The permaculture is... Uh, a design system that was started by two Australians, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. And in fact, David Holmgren will be speaking at our conference in Castle May, which is near where he lives. And their whole principle is designing diversified food systems, but also buildings that are adapted to local climates using local materials. They are among the leaders in the world at the grassroots. But their work has happened without any help, uh, really, from the media, from uh, academia, or from government, you know, very little funding, which is true generally of the local food movement. Almost all these initiatives have happened without help from above, which for me is why it is such an exciting movement. Because for me, what it spells out is that this is answering deep human needs for connection, an innate longing for that reconnection, and in developing and enhancing diversity, biological diversity. We're talking about supporting life. We're talking about an absolutely fundamental principle of life. So please don't let anyone tell you this is not realistic. That's to say life is not realistic. 
If we say that the human longing for connection and community cannot be met, it's not realistic, we can't have diversified production, we're basically saying we can't really let life into our lives. So please, please do uh, think about these issues, and I, I know that I've said a lot of things that you already know, but in putting together the bigger picture the way we do, uh, we believe that we're helping to form a frame, a big picture frame that can allow for this incredible coming together of social and environmental movements. And in fact, this is already beginning to happen. In America, there's a new economy movement. There's a, there are some very wonderful economists taking the lead. But the most wonderful thing about it is that it's bringing together social activists and environmentalists into coalitions for what some are calling the next system or the new economy. So this is, the new economy is localization, which is the economics of happiness. Thank you. Helena, thank you so much. That, that was just... Well, for me, it was so eye-opening and uh, re and revealing, and I really could have listened to you all day. But we're we're out of time, so we're all coming to Castle Moan. <laughs> we'll make sure of that. Um, I, I really, and, and I'm afraid we don't have time for for any questions because we've got to keep our program moving along. But I just thought that was quite revealing, and I, the reflection came to me as we're going along that for our own really security, our food security, our own community benefit, our own survival as a species. We actually need the freedom not to trade. That's right. Um, so you didn't only say that, about uh, you also gave us a way forward with localisation. So resistance and renewal. Can we thank Helena so much for her presentation? We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.